It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Well, hello, Ed. Where are you today? I am in Norwich. If I just peer out of this window, I can see Norwich Cathedral Spire. We're going to be recording a BBC Radio 3 house concert this afternoon and this evening, actually, the live performance in which I uh, will be conducting. You look to me like you are in your office. I can see your red box. I mean, you know, David Cameron, back in the government, foreign secretary, he's getting his own red boxes. He's just flown to Ukraine. You must be feeling a little bit jealous. Of course, a little bit jealous, but in a good way, because uh, he's my very, very good friend. It's not at all like seeing people you don't rate get the jobs that you would have liked to have done. Now, I'm very pleased for him. Um, but yeah, you know, you, you must feel the same way. We gave our lives to politics and then these are intrinsically interesting jobs and uh, so there's a little bit of me that goes hmm, you know I, I'd fancy being foreign secretary but I'm very happy that what I'm doing with the rest of my life and I think it probably keeps me sane I, the one thing I've realized <laughs> having done a intense political career is you do go slightly mad doing it and I quite enjoy my sanity the only thing I think which would make you go more crazy would be sitting around week by week, month by month, thinking maybe somebody's going to ring you up and offer you a new job like being foreign secretary. And that would totally do your head in. Politics is so random, so much serendipity, but also kind of chaos. And in the end, David Cameron, he he must have been amazed to get the call, but he's there and he's back in public service and we're not, and that is just life. And uh, we're doing a podcast and... We had a hot take on Monday after the reshovel. Hot takes is what we're going to call those times where we drop in a emergency quick podcast episode because events are changing so fast and are big and uh, we want to say something about it. And clearly David Cameron coming back to the cabinet was one of those moments. 72 hours later, how do things look for Swella Braverman, for Rishi Sunak, uh, for Keir Starmer as well? in the light of votes in Parliament last night, but also the Supreme Court judgment yesterday. And then we're going to talk about the autumn statement, which is next week. That's the big budget-like moment before Christmas. Inflation is down. Rishi Sunak appears to have hit his inflation target. But what's Jeremy Hunt going to produce from that red box? Not that you have a red box on autumn statement day, but you know what I'm talking about. 
And then we're going to talk about something which I think probably some of our listeners won't have seen. If there was a presidential election in America tomorrow, Donald Trump would be the president. He's actually surging ahead in the um, the swing states in America, according to the most recent opinion polls. Joe Biden is slipping back, and we're going to talk about why that's happening. Is that, at the moment, a reliable predictor for the presidential election in a year's time? And uh, I just wonder what it would be like if Donald Trump was in the White House this week with all these huge events going on in the world. So we'll talk about Trump and Biden later. First of all, though, we did that hot take episode Monday. 72 hours on. How has the world changed? Uh, let's start with the former Home Secretary, Suella Braveman. How does her world look three days later? Yeah, well, she got the sack. I'm not sure she anticipated she was going to get the sack, but she then has issued this incredibly aggressive resignation letter. I mean, perhaps not that surprising, except for the detail she goes into about this alleged pact she had with Rishi Sunak. You have to go back a year ago and uh, one of the reasons why Rishi Sunak was unanimously chosen as the Tory leader after Liz Truss fell was because he got the support of Suella Braverman and she represented a big chunk of the right-wing vote. And she says she had a specific set of uh, agreements with him, which he has reneged on, on things like asylum seekers and the ECHR and the Rwanda policy, the transgender policy, and so the Northern Ireland agreement. I mean, first of all, if Rishi Sunak did enter into that kind of agreement with Sweller and put it down on paper, that is a really foolish thing to do because he was going to win that contest even if someone had stood against him. And, uh, you know, to win these uh, Tory leadership contests, you must not give up in advance things that are going to be a hostage to fortune. I'm really sorry about is that. Is that a phone call from Keir Starmer? Have you got the mm. uh, call back to the front bench, Ed? Do we have to end the podcast now? No, look, I, I'm in my dad's study and I, I don't know how to unplug this phone and I tried to and I failed. But so apologies for interrupting. <laughs> so I was saying that Rishi Sunak should certainly not have offered a kind of deal to Sweller Bradman or put it in writing. He might have made some vague promises, but he should definitely not have entered into any kind of sort of formal agreement. Otherwise, we, we, one, day, one day on this podcast, we're going to talk about the Granita agreement, which you, you witnessed. But, uh, you know, that's, in my view, a mistake if um, Rishi Sunak did that. But, you know, what's interesting, I think, if you read the Sweller Bradman resignation letter, she does acknowledge right at the end of this diatribe about Rishi Sunak that she herself... Uh, may have made mistakes. She, it, it hasn't really been picked up, but right at the end, she talks about using language that perhaps wasn't always the right language. And uh, I think that's an acknowledgement that she made a mistake in the Times article in which she accused the police of being biased. She said, I may not always have found the right words. And it's right at the end of her letter. And I think that means that's a clue that she was not really expecting to have to go. She was not, this was not a deliberate attempt to get sacked. It was a newspaper article that went a bit far and has ended up putting her on the back benches. But, you know, clearly now a big management problem for Rishi Sunak outside the tent. Do you think, though, that um, she expected the Supreme Court judgment to be so bad for the government? I mean, if the Supreme Court had said the ECHR prevents the Rwanda policy going ahead, that would have been one thing. But they basically said a whole series of international treaties and domestic laws. They, I mean, it was a, a pretty damning verdict for the Home Secretary if they were supposed to be in charge of the policy. She used that letter to try and claim that uh, it wasn't her fault, that Rishi Sunak was not taking her advice. He was the reason 
the changes she wanted in legislation more widely had been blocked. But uh, I think if she'd still be the Home Secretary yesterday, it would have been a terrible day for her. And actually, she's slightly out of jail by um, by having been sacked on Monday. Well, she's out of jail, except she's on the back benches. And, you know, the great river of politics <laughs> moves on very, very quickly. And soon, you know, after she's given her first big interview, well, people aren't going to be that interested in her views, at least for a while. I, I mean, I think there's an interesting question is surely the government must have anticipated, this is your point, that they might lose this judgment. They had already lost it in the Court of Appeal, after all. And it does seem a bit strange to me that they were not a bit more prepared to come out immediately with the plan B. I mean, I know Rishi Sunak says, I've got a new treaty coming with Rwanda. Uh, I'm going to introduce legislation in the parliament. It still looked pretty chaotic. And, you know, if he's trying to convince people, I'm doing everything I can to stop the boats, above all, what he's got to convey is grip, control. Uh, I'm in charge of events. I'm not surprised that I've lost this court judgment. Because, you know, prime ministers must never look like they're not in control of events. And that's why things like the run on a pound or a bank failure or a prison riot, they're so damaging for governments. And here it just looks like these people are not in charge. And the one thing you want from your prime minister is, is someone in charge. So I think it has been damaging, even if they will think, well, at least we're you know, putting forward plans on immigration, which Labour aren't going to be able to match. The aggression of that letter and the divisiveness of it will make her very unpopular in the Conservative Parliamentary Party. She's not got big numbers on her side. The thing which you can definitely say is that if it went to the members, if she could get on the ballot for a Conservative leadership election after the election at the moment, she's um, pretty well placed. But I guess what Rishi Sunak has decided to do on Monday by sacking her is that his biggest enemies, his fiercest critics, are now on his own side as much as on the other side of the House of Commons, the opposition. He's brought forward the big conservative row about the direction of conservatism to the here and now rather than trying to maintain unity until a general election. I just wonder, does that work to his advantage? I mean, three days on, was the high point of the Sunak premiership about Tuesday at 3pm Reshuffle had gone down well. Cameron was leading the news. It had all gone well. Then suddenly the combination of um, the Braverman letter and the Supreme Court plunges it back into crisis. Or did he know on Monday this was going to happen? And is this a bold and clever strategic move? Well, I think it's true to say that the Tory civil war has got going again. And uh, it had basically died down after the fall of Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak had been given a pass by the right of the party to establish himself as prime minister. Boris Johnson was ejected from parliament, which helped a lot, or ejected himself from parliament, I should say. And now that has been reignited, not just from Suella Bravman, but Nadine Doris and, and various other characters. But Sunak has, A, a cabinet I think he's more comfortable with. B, he'll feel he's hitting his big economic targets. We're going to come on and talk about that. C, on asylum, I think he would say, okay, fine, it's really difficult. Lots of countries are struggling with mass migration. At least I've got a plan. Where's the opposition plan? And, you know, I think he'll... Although he's not going to stop the boats. Well, of course, that's the big test he set himself. I mean, by the way, his new Home Secretary, who I I quite like, uh, (laughs) I don't know him that well, James Cleverly, but um, I've always, from a distance, thought handles himself pretty well. I thought he's been quite amusing because he's the guy in charge of this policy. And he has apparently described it as batshit. Now, he said this in private, and he's struggling to deny that when he's questioned in public, as you'll see from this clip. Yesterday in the Commons, you were 
accused of describing the Rwanda system as batshit. Is that true? Did you say those words? Well, look, I'm not. Uh, that's that's that was a claim made of me, not something uh, that uh, that I said. <laughs> that's you know, it was a claim made of him. I mean, I had some sympathy for him in that. You know, it's, it's happened to me in the past when you know you say something in private and then people ask you in public whether you said it, and you don't want to lie uh, because most politicians don't actually want to lie uh, in in a very direct way like that. So. Um, I have some sympathy. Anyway, he's now in charge of this policy. I think there's an interesting question So for Rishi Sunak, which is, so he will say, look, uh, you know, okay, it's tough I lost the judgment, but I've got rid of Suella Bravman. The Cameron appointment has gone well. The inflation target has been hit. And I have got a plan ahead on uh, dealing with the boats that will make a meaningful difference. I think it's all the big question now is, is that plan going to work any better than the plan that has just been shot down by the Supreme Court? And I would make this other observation, which is, you know, he needs to stick to a course. I mean, we were talking, uh, you know, in the last couple of podcasts about how at the party conference, he said, I'm the big change candidate. Then he brings David Cameron back. You know, he presents himself now as I'm occupying the center ground. I'm the sensible, rational, sober prime minister. I follow the rule of law. And then a minute later, when a kind of rogue Tory MP gets up and says, we're going to break the law and send a... Asylum seekers to Rwanda anyway. This is the deputy body chairman Lee Anderson. Rishi Sunak refuses to condemn him. So he's you know he's got to kind of pick his groove. He's got to pick his course in politics, and that is what leadership's about. You've got to yeah. stick with you know your position, even if it's difficult. Look, the cynical view of the Supreme Court judgment is that the one really bad outcome for Rishi Sunak and for James Cleverly is if the Supreme Court had allowed the policy to go ahead, because the truth is. It's going to be very hard for them to stop the boats, even with the Rwanda policy. It's a tiny number of people who would be sent there. It's going to be hugely, hugely expensive. And now at least he can say if he fails to stop the boats, because there's no way he's going to stop the boats this year or into next year now. He can at least blame somebody else. The trouble is it was simpler to blame the ECHR, to blame the European Convention. Now... Because of the scale of that judgment, it's actually about the United Nations, international treaties, domestic law. And I felt looking at the commentary, the legal commentary today, nobody thinks there is any credible plan which allows him to turn the Rwanda policy round into next year, certainly before the general election. It'd be very unlikely anybody is going to go on a boat, uh, on a plane to Rwanda before polling day. And so... He's going to be on the back foot on this policy all the way through. And I don't think that he, David Cameron and James Cleverly, are the kind of politicians who are going to want to blame the judges in the way in which Boris Johnson tried to do a couple of years ago. So I personally think three days on, this is this is not this has not ended up being a great week for Rishi Sunak. Well, it's certainly the court verdict looks like a defeat for him, and prime ministers don't like to suffer defeats. I would agree with that. But I think there is a bigger policy issue here, which would face the Labour Party very quickly if it was in office, which is how are these countries supposed to deal with mass migration in the modern age and people crossing the Channel or Mediterranean on boats? And other countries like Italy, or indeed, you know, the great shining example of this some years ago was Australia, have processed asylum cases offshore. So it it will be a challenge for a Labour government as well. Mm. And it'll be interesting. Where I hope Sunak doesn't go is down the route of 
ECHR withdrawal altogether, which has always been there as a something that elements of the Tory right support. For me, that would you know be very bad for the country personally, um, and also bad for the Tory party. And it, you know the interesting thing about David Cameron's appointment is now the second most senior member of the government, David Cameron. I don't think necessarily will go along with something as extreme as that. He's actually more right-wing than I am on this. Um, He was a Home Office special advisor for Michael Howard. He's always railed against elements of ECHR judgments. But I think the option of going into the general election saying we're going to pull out of the ECHR and throw the challenge to Labour, see whether they agree or not, I think that's basically now off the table because David Cameron is Foreign Secretary. Look, David Cameron is back as Foreign Secretary, standing in the world flying to Ukraine, he can um, talk to international states people about big global issues. And I think he will um, have important conversations with, for example, Secretary of State Blinken about what's happening in Israel, Gaza, and with a kind of strong two-state solution approach to it. But the thing he hasn't got to do anymore is manage the Conservative Party in Parliament. He hasn't got to get elected. He doesn't have any of the burdens which Rishi Sunak has over the next nine months. I mean, in a way, compared to what he had to do before, he's going to have a much more enjoyable time as a global statesman and he's going to, going to leave Rishi Sunak to deal with all the uh, tough stuff. Well, I think this is a kind of key question about his role in the next year, and I have not discussed this with him, I should say, in the last couple of days, which is, is David Cameron just returning to be the kind of elder statesman, foreign secretary who goes and deals with these important issues abroad, but doesn't really add to the Tory general election effort at home and the fight against Labour? Or does he get stuck in? And I think, you know, if it's the former, that's good for Britain and having a more high-powered foreign secretary. Uh, I was talking to a former prime minister of Australia yesterday, and uh, they were observing that Britain definitely will now have a foreign secretary who will have more clout in foreign capitals because he's a former prime minister and you'd be able to get to see the prime minister or president of the country he visits. But, you know, I think the question is, will David be drawn into the domestic fight? And if I was Rishi Sunak, I would want that. It's another powerful weapon alongside me. I would have David in all my kind of key strategy meetings. This is the guy who, after all, has won two general elections. And, you know, the jury is out on whether that happens and whether the kind of Rishi Sunak inner circle, which, by the way, has key people who worked for David Cameron in it, whether uh, it expands to include David, and um, we're going to find out. But what is your instinct? If you were in David Cameron's shoes, would you be drawn back into all of that again? I mean, he, he, he can make the news on foreign policy, but does he actually want to be right at the centre of all those fights again? Well, first, I think you'd probably find it quite hard to resist. You know, um, he'll want to, you know, he's, he's always at someone who when he was a junior shadow minister, when he was a special advisor, when he was party leader, you know, he wants to be at the centre of things and helping and rolling up his sleeves, both metaphorically and literally, if people remember images from those general elections. And also, I think, you know, we should talk now about the other big event of the week, which is the huge Labour rebellion on Gaza. Foreign policy might have an impact on domestic politics in a way that it has several times during our careers, Ed, I mean, most famously, uh, the Iraq war. But what did you think? I mean, that, I thought that was a much larger rebellion against Keir Starmer. This is, by the way, for people who haven't followed it, this is, you know, over a quarter of all Labour MPs voted with the Scottish nationalists against Keir Starmer's 
motion in Parliament on Gaza, they called for an immediate ceasefire, which Starmer argues would help Hamas continue its campaign of terror against Israel. And he lost some uh, members of the front bench, many of whom people won't have heard of, but Jess Phillips is pretty well known. She left the government as well. So what's your reaction? A bigger rebellion than you expected, a bigger problem for Starmer than you uh, would have anticipated? Well, look, we've talked about the scale of the challenges Labour's been grappling with over four weeks on this podcast now. And and we've also said that we thought Keir Starmer got behind the curve in the early weeks and uh, did damage to his standing in Muslim communities. And I think we're seeing some of the consequences here. And let's also be honest, there's been a very big campaign of letter writing and emails to MPs in those constituencies organised by all sorts of different groups, but including the hard left. I think he will be, one, surprised by the scale of the rebellion. Two, very pleased that nobody from the shadow cabinet broke the line and voted with the ceasefire motion. I think he'll look at the the MPs from the front bench who who went and think, well, you know, they were either campaign group, the Corbynista hard left MPs in the parliamentary party, or people like Jess Phillips who have particularly complex constituency issues and because of the Muslim communities in their constituencies, same with Naz Shah. But the fact is, it's a big rebellion and it's on a, the same scale as Tony Blair had in March 2003 over the Iraq war, the same percentage of the parliamentary party breaking from the line. But that was six years into a Labour government after a kind of long and very difficult debate about foreign policy for kind of months and before that point. And this is Keir Starmer before he's even become prime minister. I think what it tells you is, look, I don't think this is a threat to Keir Starmer's standing. I think it's probably the peak moment at which um, Israel-Gaza will be a politically divisive issue because you can see it in the Labour motion, in what he and David Lammy have been saying, what Rishi Sunak's been saying, Blinken and Biden as well. There's growing criticism of what is happening in Gaza and the approach that Netanyahu is taking. And so I think that is going to to grow in the coming weeks. But um, I think it tells you that this will be challenging for Keir Starmer, that he is he's less likely to be Tony Blair 1997. I mean, there were no rebellions like this for Labour anywhere like that scale in 95-96. It's much more likely, especially if it's a very close election or a hung parliament, that he will have to have the kind of political management skills that Howard Wilson had in the late 60s and early 1970s. Don't forget Howard Wilson in opposition was grappling with a massive divide in the Labour Party over our membership of the European Union, which Ted Heath was taking us into. The reason we had a referendum in 75 um, was Wilson trying to hold the parliamentary party together and, of course, happening at a time when he had basically no majority. So Keir Starmer, close election, big divides, bigger campaign group. He's going to need very acute political management and handling skills to hold the Parliamentary Labour Party together in the next um, two, three, four years, especially if Labour wins. And they're going to have to do better than they've done in the last month. I also think, you know, this rebellion uh, last night is potentially the shape of things to come if Labour get into office, but have either a very small majority or are reliant on the SNP for their majority in the House of Commons, which, you know, if you look at the polls may well be the outcome of that election. And, you know, the SNP's ability to sort of pull the left further left to destabilise Labour leadership was demonstrated in spades last night. And 
by definition, you'll have many more Labour MPs if there's a Labour government. And maybe, you know, what we've still got is a sort of Corbynista Labour parliamentary party from that got elected in 2019, not the one that would get elected in 2024 or 2025. But nevertheless, I think it's just a real straw in the wind that a Labour government is not going to be, as you put it very well just now, the kind of Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, 1997, you know, a new day has dawned, has it not, kind of moment. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be much messier, much more divided Labour Party, a much more complicated government to run. So next week, we've got the autumn statement. That's the budget-like event that happens in November, but doesn't have all the uh, pizzazz of the red box and all of that. But it's also a really important moment for Jeremy Hunt, who people are asking inside the Conservative Party, can he deliver what the Tories might need to win an election? And he's had some good news because, and as Rishi Zunak has had, that uh, inflation has come down, come down very uh, markedly this week from 6.7% to 4.6%. So Sunak has hit his target of halving inflation. And I imagine in the Treasury, Ed, they'll be pretty relieved with that and pretty pleased. Look, if you set targets, as Rishi Sunak did at the beginning of the year, and say when you're going to meet them, then it's always much better to meet them. And they are going to have the economy growing. I'm sure they'll have the net debt falling to the targets they set. It's going to be quite hard on boats in the NHS. But on inflation, they said they'd halve inflation and they've done that with this latest number. Still quite a long way to go to the inflation target of 2%. Inflation is still twice as high as that. It's been happening partly because energy prices have been coming down this year around the world. But also, look, the Bank of England has been raising interest rates to put up mortgage rates to slow the economy. And inflation coming down is part of that tough policy working. When you look under the numbers, though, even in that most recent inflation number, food prices compared to a year ago are up by 10%. So that means that uh, if you bought £100 worth of food a year ago, it cost you £110 now. Compared to two years ago, a basket of food two years ago for £100, it would cost you £130. And inflation coming down doesn't mean people are better off. It means that just that prices aren't rising as fast as they were before. They're still going up, you know, butter it's still going to be very expensive to buy. And I guess what that means is, although they've met that target, the challenge for Jeremy Hunt is, is he actually going to make people better off? Is he actually going to ease the cost of living squeeze, which has been so hard on people this year? Are there things he can do in the, the budget, not to stop people getting even worse off, but to start them getting better off? So I remember this very clearly from when I was in the Treasury, which is you get a set of numbers which, against your own measures, are great. You know, you've got inflation coming down or growth has come back to the economy. And you want to make a big song and dance about them in your speech at the dispatch box. And then I remember my advisors and the civil servants would say to me, no, 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 you know, out there in the real world, people are still really feeling the squeeze. And you're going to sound very out of touch if you go around being triumphalist about these numbers. And you're quite right that, yes, inflation is coming down, but it doesn't mean that prices aren't still going up. They're now going up by almost 5% a year instead of by 10% a year. It's still a lot. And the things that people you know, really notice, like when they go to the supermarket, those food prices are, are still uh, soaring at 10%, as you say, a year. So I think there's a kind of difficult judgment there for Jeremy Hunt. And then he's got another difficult judgment to make, which is 
He's been Mr. Steady Eddie, Mr. You know, I came in to rescue the economy under Liz Truss and then under Rishi Sunak. I'm a safe pair of hands. But he's got all this pressure from the Conservative MPs to produce some, you know, miracle rabbit out of the hat that's going to change their political fortunes. Remember, the latest polls show the Tory party is even further behind Labour than it has been in recent weeks. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure on him to do that. And what does he do? And he's got to make this quite tactical judgment. Everyone knows there'll be a pre-election giveaway. There always is a pre-election giveaway, whoever is the Chancellor. Uh, I think the, the question is, do you do it now? And then you've got a real chance of them being seen in people's, those tax cuts having effect, being legislated for, you know, the effects being seen in people's pay packets before polling day. But you've also, by the time you get to polling day, people might have forgotten about them. Or do you save all your firepower for your pre-election budget, the one that happens just a kind of few weeks before a general election? And I tended to favour trying to do it more uh, earlier on so that people would see the real effects. I was also constrained by, it has to be said, in a coalition. So I knew the Liberal Democrats wouldn't allow me a big kind of Tory pre-election giveaway budget in 2015. So 2014, the, the autumn statement and the budget is when I, you know, put the kind of electoral firepower into the uh, into the budget statement and did some big changes to pensions that I knew pensioners would welcome and I believe uh, improve the pension system. So, you know, that's an interesting tactical judgment, isn't it, for a chancellor? It's true. I mean, he's got a timing question. We actually did cut the basic rate of income tax in the budget just before the 2001 election. I don't think... Gordon Brown was using that tax cut to say, look, we've cut your taxes in some sort of big congratulatory way. It was more to um, to kind of close off the attack that Labour always wanted to raise taxes. And look, we'd cut the basic rate. I mean, there it was. We'd, we'd done it. But uh, I think for Jeremy Hunt, his, his challenge is partly timing, but it's also partly about substance. He's going to have a bit of room for manoeuvre, but he's got some Conservatives saying, cut taxes. There's speculation he might cut inheritance tax. That might go down quite well amongst some Conservative backbenchers in some constituencies. But then there's also, what's he going to do about the cost of living? You know, the um, the affordability of life for most people. Most people are not going to be helped by an inheritance tax cut. Um, he'd have to do something which is a bit more mainstream. Something more mainstream is much more expensive and hard to do in a big, flashy way. And then he's also got, as we talked about last week, the pressure on um, public services, in particular the NHS, because inflation pushing up costs in the NHS, and he probably can't do all of those. So does he decide to do the thing which Tory backbenchers want? Does he do something about the cost of living? Does he do something about public services? And I think on on tax, I think the other thing I'd say is, in budgets, you've always got to be careful. If you try and claim one thing and people think the opposite is true, it tends to unravel. Anything which looks like smoke and mirrors, the fundamental truth about this parliament I think actually for quite good reasons, Rishi Sunak, not Jeremy Hunt, decided to put in place tax rises through restricting the personal allowance not to rise in line with inflation, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which have pushed up the tax burden and will continue to do so to get the budget deficit down, to restore the public finances. And there is nothing Jeremy Hunt can do in this budget to stop those taxes going up. And if he comes along and says... With one small measure, I've cut taxes. So I'm a tax cutter. And the truth is, taxes are going up. The tax burden's rising. I think in the end, the danger is that backfires. And maybe he, his better strategy is just to say, look, we're sorting out a mess. 
the deficit's improving. We're doing everything we can to ease the pressure for families. Stick with us and the tax cuts will come. I wonder whether if he tries to claim the tax cuts are here, whether it's now or in nine months' time, whether that just backfires. Yeah, I, I have a lot of sympathy for what you're saying. I think you know we're talking about the political tactics here, but fundamentally, you know, the government's got to do the right thing for the economy, and it will be judged on that. And for a Conservative Chancellor, that is, you know, sorting out the public finances and creating the conditions for enterprise, and that's certainly what you know. I always had a sort of, sort of guiding star, even if you've got to make the tactical manoeuvres that keep you alive in politics and keep your party alive. And the truth is that taxes have gone up a lot, as you say, and that is a decision of. Uh, successive recent Conservative chancellors. And the tax burden has gone from, it's pretty staggering. I was looking at these figures. So the tax burden used to be 33% of GDP, uh, roughly when you and I were in politics uh, and in the Treasury. And it's now jumped to 37%. It's forecast to go to 38% of national income. And what that means for, you know, in real money is £4,200 per household. If you look at the OBR numbers or the Resolution Foundation have some similar calculations, that's, that's a bit, and you're right that you can't then pretend you're a tax-cutting chancellor because taxes are going up, and particularly if the person who put the taxes up is now your prime minister. And that's why I think you end up with things like, the reason why they're talking about inheritance tax, the reason why they're, they're speculation about stamp duty, these are fundamentally, and they may not feel like this to people who pay them, quite small taxes for the chancellor. They are not the big taxes like income tax, VAT, national insurance. These taxes don't raise huge amounts of money for the exchequer. And so you can afford to basically make some quite sexy maneuvers on them. Uh, you can cut stamp duty as you know I did in one of my pre-election budgets or autumn statements. You know, I cut stamp duty for the great majority of homeowners and got people who bought very expensive houses to pay more stamp duty to pay for it, as they constantly remind me. That, you know, but you can afford to those sorts of manoeuvres. You can afford something on inheritance tax. Again, it's not a huge revenue raiser. And so that's why those things are being speculated about. No one is expecting him to deliver big cuts in income tax or a big uh, cut in national insurance. If anything, all the pressure in that space is in the opposite direction. And what it allows him to say is, look, you know, here's my instinct. This is what I'd like to do. I'd like to do more of this if I could. You know, come with me on this journey. If you keep voting for me, there'll be more of this to come. As opposed to, uh, if he overclaims, as I think quite a lot of his backbenchers would like on tax, then it will backfire. The other challenge for him is uh, there's an expectation that he won't go ahead with the fuel duty rise, which is currently programmed for next spring. There's an expectation in business, that he won't end the current support for capital investment, the um, temporary, as they are at the moment, allowances for investment. But if he does those two things, if he doesn't go ahead with the fuel duty rise and then makes capital allowances permanent, together, they cost billions and billions of pounds. I mean, well over 10, close to 15 billion pounds a year. And what is he doing? He's spending loads of money to affirm what people already think is the case, that petrol won't go up and that the capital allowances will continue. If he doesn't do those things, he'll get attacked. If he does those things, which I guess he will, it will cost him billions and he'll get almost no credit at all on budget day. People shrug their shoulders and say, well, of course we knew he was going to do that. And that is kind of a frustrating thing. If you're a chancellor, you want to have a pot of gold which you can actually dole out yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And the fuel duty increases, 
you know, a very good example of that where people, no one's really expecting him to go ahead with that and he can't possibly go ahead with it. He'd lose the vote in the House of Commons if he tried. So I think we can take that as a given. I think they'll try and make more out of... But it's £5 billion. Pounds. No, I know, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a huge amount of money. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, it's an absolute given that that will be frozen. I think the... Um, the business allowances, the capital allowances for business tax, quite complicated, but it's a kind of big Rishi Sunak policy. I think they'll try and make more of that as a, a major permanent change to the tax system as opposed to a temporary one. I think it's, you know, the, the, we, as, you know, we've been there in the room. A lot of these decisions will already have been taken. And there's an interesting question of to what degree uh, this group of ministers uh, listen to civil servants and listen to those uh, brilliant Treasury officials that you and I worked uh, alongside. Uh, let's have, we had a question from Annie. Uh, she asks, how do you see the relationship between civil servants and ministers? In my experience as a technical advisor, I found I was treated as unhelpful when spelling out the realities of an idea. And the wonderful David Gork was one of the few Treasury ministers who actually listened to us, much to the annoyance of our Treasury partner colleagues. As civil servants, it's our job to speak truth to power, however unwelcome the message. Do you agree? Well, I do agree with Annie. And, you know, as proof, the sort of thing politicians always say. <laughs> My proof, Ed, is that I kept David Gore in the Treasury for six years as a minister. He, he, the moment I was uh, defenestrated, he went on to great things, became the Lord Chancellor, and then it ended up running as an independent against the Conservatives and writes a very good column in the New Statesman about the Tory party. But he was, you know, he, because he was a minister in the Treasury for so long, he did really develop a strong relationship with the civil service. And he was my key advisor on tax. And you might think, well, that's normal. You know, the Chancellor should rely on his junior ministers, but you will know that's not always the case that you rely on your junior ministers. But it was definitely the case. And when we got close to budgets, I would always uncork the gawk. So I've got to ask you, therefore, where was he in the run up to the famous Omni Shambles budget, which I think was, was it 2013? 2012. The budget, the budget where it all sort of unraveled for you. 2012, was it? Because, uh, to answer Annie's question... I mean, not question, that I can remember, of course. <laughs> you did remember that very quickly. <laughs> it's not, not, I mean, not at all seared in my memory. The, the thing is, Annie, in my experience, what you needed to do as a Treasury Minister or as, as advisor is get all the experts around the table, maybe three or four, five months before Budget Day, and you always wanted to know everything. You know, what's the problems? Who will it hit? Who will complain? The last thing you wanted to do was to be surprised. And there was one budget, 2012, as you said, where it did unravel in the two or three weeks afterwards. It suddenly turned out that you were going to tax pasties with hot food. You were going to tax skips. There were other things in this Omni Shambles uh, budget you couldn't probably remember better than me. And it was almost as though David Gork or your advisors hadn't quite said to you, you do realise... There's quite a few things here which are going to cause you quite a lot of problems. And you ended up doing quite a few U-turns. So what went on? Why weren't the Treasury officials telling you what the problems were? So I think it's a very good... I did eight budgets, and this was the one that properly unraveled. And there were two things we got wrong. So the first is we were concentrated... I was very concentrated on the really big manoeuvres in the budget, which were cutting the top rate of income tax from 50p to 45p, which is obviously a difficult thing to do, but I thought was essential to show that the country was open to uh, enterprise and entrepreneurship. And the Liberal Democrats... Do you still uh, think that looking back? Was that, yeah, it's definitely. I think we do you still have, think that looking back? 
I don't think if we could have had a 50p rate of tax, I don't think it was very bad for Britain. And in fact, New Labour knew it was bad for Britain because they only introduced it in literally the last month of their 13 years in office. It was a classic election trap for the Tories, which you know I tried to untangle. The Liberal Democrats wouldn't allow me just to cut, of course, the top rate of income tax. We had to also increase the tax-free personal allowance for basic rate taxpayers. And then because you know the whole this was all against the backdrop of where we had to make the books add up, we had to find other tax rises. And the truth is we spent too much time thinking about the tax cuts and not enough time thinking about the tax rises. And they were a string of smaller measures, which we think we thought people would notice because they were kind of basically making the tax system simpler and clearing up anomalies like, you know, fish and chips have VAT on them, but pasties don't. And we thought people will understand we're trying to make things simpler. The second thing I'd say is, you know, we did have months of uh, discussion about the budget, but there was a mistake, you know, which I absolutely take responsibility for, which is in all the budget documents about the taxing of hot food, we were very focused on rotisserie chickens, which had popped up as a new offer from supermarkets. Uh, you could go and buy a cooked chicken, and it, for various reasons, it, because it was already just heated up cooked food rather than cooked on the premises, like fish and chips, uh, it didn't have VAT. And in none of the budget briefing beforehand did anyone mention pasties. So we just went into it not knowing that pasties were actually going to be affected by this thing or that, you know, um, suddenly, you know, we'd have a massive campaign from the likes of Greg's against what we were doing. That is true. And also, um, goodness knows why you ended up taxing static caravans. I mean, I had all these caravan manufacturers ringing me from Hull or from North Norfolk saying what they're doing to us. But the thing which really took hold was um, pasties. And it sort of it allowed for a period, the media and Labour, to say the trouble with David Cameron, George Osborne, you know, they don't really know what it's like to get a sausage roll or a Cornish pasty at the train station or on the way to work. And therefore, they are can think this is an easy target. And... Um, I think David Cameron got into a bit of trouble, didn't he, about pasties? I'm a, a pasty eater myself. I go to Cornwall on holiday. I love a hot pasty. I think the last one I bought was from the uh, West Cornwall Pasty Company, um, who I seem to remember I was in Leeds Station at the time, and the choice was whether to have one of their small ones or their large ones, and I've got a feeling I opted for the large one, and very good it was too. But I'd be pretty sure that would be already paying VAT because it was hot takeaway food. But I'm sure the sun will have someone rushing up to that shop right away to check it out. Um, unfortunately, the sun for David did rush up to the shop and discovered that, as Network Rail confirmed, it had actually been shut, I think, five years before. There hadn't been this particular Cornish pasty seller on Leeds Station for some years. And uh, it allowed me and Ed Miliband to, um, with Rachel Reeves, actually, my number two at the time, we dropped into a Greg's with TV cameras in order to um, to buy sausage rolls. I, being a regular Greg's shopper, went up to the counter and said, I'll have eight sausage rolls in separate bags, please. And Ed Miliband, who didn't look like he'd been to Greg's very many times in his life, to be honest, was a bit taken aback that I'd want different bags for each one. But of course, the answer is, if you've got kids in the back of the car, is the only way to stop sausage roll crumbs going everywhere. And... Uh, and in the end, you this was but this was all pre your um, pre your uh, svelte uh, strictly come dancing self. 
having your eight uh, uh, <laughs> Greg's pasties. They, they, they were not all for me. It was for the three of us and all the other people who were on the uh, the trip I with us. I did get a bit of ribbing about the fact, why did, why did I want five or six? And they were having um, two each. Well, anyway, that, and you're right that the, um, David's attempt to dig us out of the hole <laughs> kind of took us further into the hole. And I was being asked, like, when did you last have a pasty? Have you ever been to Greg's? I knew, I knew, you know, we were in serious trouble when I turned up at the Treasury on Horse Guards Parade in London and someone dressed as Marie Antoinette was handing out pasties to people going in. So we, you know, in, in a situation like that, to use the old um, kind of Dennis Healy adage, if you're in a hole, political hole, you need to stop digging. And uh, so I decided pretty quickly on that this budget was falling apart. And the thing about a budget is, uh, and it's true of an autumn statement, you make this big announcement in the Commons, but then you have months afterwards of the laws passing through Parliament, the finance bill, you have loads of debates, loads of votes. And I could see I was in real trouble. And I had to just slowly unpick elements of the budget that were not going to fly, like the uh, taxing of static caravans, the one I particularly objected to was I tried to introduce a rule that said very wealthy people had to pay at least some income tax a year because there are, believe it or not, people in this country who pay no income tax and haven't paid any income tax for decades despite being very wealthy because they use various uh, exemptions and uh, including gifts to charity. And suddenly I found the entire charity sector who normally campaign against tax avoidance on my back. I had to negotiate with bishops around uh, VAT for church repairs and find some money to do up cathedrals, which is... I mean, our cathedrals, like the one in Norwich now, is uh, probably a beneficiary of that. But it was a real nightmare. But it, and it required, you know, once a budget starts to go wrong, it can go really spectacularly wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I think coming back to kind of Jeremy Hunt's kind of challenge, keep it simple, keep it true to yourself. Jeremy Hunt, you are the guy who is bringing stability to the British economy, bringing, you know, sobriety after the Liz Truss period. That's also Rishi Sunak's big appeal to the country. And don't get lured by the Tory right, who never have the best ideas, into sort of flashy tax cuts, which, as you said earlier in this podcast, people aren't going to believe because the tax burden's gone up. There's also a really kind of interesting, I think, learning from that particular budget and more generally about how it works on budget day, which is uh, that immediately after the budget speech, the Chancellor's key people, his head of press, but also top advisers stand outside the chamber of the House of Commons with the whole of the parliamentary lobby and go through all the detail of the budget. And uh, the straw in the wind we had that afternoon, I was the shadow chancellor, was that your advisor, I think it was Rupert Harrison, was doing that briefing, got into a bit of trouble on one of the pensioners' issues and then referred the journalist to HMRC to get more details. And... That was a sign of how things were going to go wrong because I did that briefing after the budget, I don't know, 16 times probably, budgets, autumn statements, used to do it in opposition as well. And what you have to do is absorb every question. And I used to have this argument with Alistair Campbell because Alistair Campbell used to like to come up and stand next to me and breathe down my neck. And he sort of didn't really, you know, thought, why are you doing all this detail, you know, the message is what, just tell them the message and they'll write it. And surely the Chancellor's done the budget. But the thing you had to do, if you were in the position I was in, in all those budgets, is you had to stand there and answer every question. And so there was no question they could ask, which you couldn't answer, because 
at that point, people went away. I'm talking about here, all the political editors from the newspapers thinking, look, there aren't any surprises here. There's nothing which they're not telling us about. Didn't always mean that we got it right. Sometimes, you know, there was something we hadn't spotted or something which went wrong. But you had to sort of kind of open yourself up to every question. Alistair didn't like it, but it was the right thing to do. And on that day, your guys didn't have all the detailed answers to all those questions. And there's a really important lesson for chancellors in the future and for advisors, which you ha- you have to know everything about everything you're doing on Budget Day or Autumn Statement Day. And I would say generally you did. And the one year where you didn't, it unraveled. Well, it, de- it definitely unraveled. And I'm, I'm certainly that may be a fair criticism. I think we were on top of it. It's just we didn't really fess up to the fact we were raising taxes. We tried to claim they were like tax simplifications. And the hardest thing in politics is to raise taxes. I mean, the history of Britain is replete with tax rebellions. You know, the history of the French Revolution is all about royal government trying to raise taxes. It is hard to raise taxes. It's an interesting, we should perhaps come back to this next week. It's a big test for the opposition, for Rachel Reeves. This is her big moment. She responds to the autumn statement, the budget Keir Starmer responds to. Can I pull apart Gordon Brown or Alistair Darling? I used to go straight into the lobby after I'd spoken in the Commons and brief the lobby myself to try and pull it apart. So perhaps next week we will not just talk about Jeremy Hunt's actual autumn statement, but whether Rachel Reeves has responded in a way that makes her a convincing alternative chancellor. You're totally right about how important it is for the shadow chancellor. And unlike the chancellor who knows what is in the budget or autumn statement, if you're the shadow chancellor, you read the newspapers, but you don't actually find out until it's delivered and you have to respond straight away. And that is really tough. We'll talk about that um, next week as we digest the autumn statement. In the meantime, after the break, we're going to talk about what is going on in American politics and is Donald Trump starting to surge? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is really election interference. It's all over. This trial is ridiculous. The numbers are much greater than on the financial statement. And we've already proven that. The voice of Donald Trump this week coming out of court. So we've been obsessing here in Britain the last few days about the kind of smorgasbord of British politics and the complexity of these last few days. But actually, over in America, over the last few days, there's been a growing realisation that despite all of the chaos of Donald Trump's multiple legal fights he's involved in, actually, in the opinion polls, he's doing well. Politico was reporting a um, stack data strategy poll 
from last weekend, which had him in the key battleground states. Trump was ahead in four of them, and only two of them projected to be won by Biden, all states which Biden won last time round. Trump at the moment, according to that poll, would slightly lose the popular vote, but would comfortably win the Electoral College and be elected president. And there are other polls been saying the same thing in recent weeks. Isn't it surprising that when the American economy looks like it's doing better and Donald Trump is in the dock, mm. he's also on track to be the next president of the United States? I mean, I think we, we all find this really hard to understand because, you know, can you imagine a British candidate for the premiership who's got you know several criminal trials various civil trials you know behaves the way that trump behaves and can you imagine that person still being seen as a credible challenger in an election um but he is and you know the it depends on of course your your attitude <laughs> towards donald trump but for many people in britain the bad news will be that he is doing a lot better uh, he's seen off his uh, other Republican challengers. There was a governor in Florida, DeSantis. He's basically evaporated in the heat of the uh, kind of Trump election campaign. And against Biden, Trump is doing really well at the moment. I mean, if you look at some of the numbers behind these polls, it's pretty staggering on things like the economy. 59% of people favor Trump compared to 37% Biden. On immigration, 53% Trump, 41% on Biden. And then... I think a kind of unspoken issue, and it's a kind of difficult one, and you have to discuss it sensitively, but on Israel-Gaza, you know, where Biden has been taking a position where he's saying, you know, there's got to be humanitarian pauses, we've got to be concerned about what's happening in Gaza. You know, Trump's taken a much harder line, which is Hamas are terrorists, I'm completely pro-Israel, and that is definitely resonating with a majority of Americans. So in many respects, Trump is dramatically strengthening his position at the moment. And the only kind of solace, if you don't want to see Trump win, is that in some real elections, the equivalent of kind of local elections in America in the states themselves, in places like Virginia and Kentucky, the Democrats are actually doing pretty well, partly by mobilizing the female vote to come out and vote against the anti-abortion stance of the Republicans. But I would say that at the moment is a silver lining uh, to what it looks to me like Trump is pretty certainly going to be the candidate and now has a pretty good chance of becoming the next president. And the amazing thing about Trump in the race to be the Republican candidate, he wins by not even turning up at the debates. He leaves all his contenders to fight it out amongst themselves and they've ended up looking pygmies compared to him politically. That is the reality on the Republican side. It says a lot about the mess the Republican Party has got into. I was in touch with... Um, some of my Democrat um, friends, I was in touch with Bob Shrum, who ran the Kerry campaign. He referred me on to uh, an article written by Jim Messina, who um, you'll know, George, who ran the 2012 Obama campaign. And he ran the Tory 2015 election here, so I know Jim very well. What was he doing? I mean, what? He's just a Democrat. Anyway, anyway, I'll get beyond that. But in those Democrat circles, they're saying, well, look, first of all, you know, it's still very early. Uh, the swing voters haven't focused on the race. Also, the economy will get better and those economy numbers will improve for Biden over the next year because it's not fed through the economy being strong. And young voters at the moment are saying they're less likely to vote or to vote for the Democrats because they're worrying about Israel-Gaza. But when it's framed as a Trump-Biden choice, that will change things. And they say, look, if you look at Clinton a year out, Obama 
a year out, they were also behind in the polls and then surged through and therefore don't write off Biden yet. And I want to believe all of that. And I think there's a lot to be said. I think actually Biden has hugely surprised on the upside as a president on a number of things, including the economy. I think he's done well on Israel Gaza myself. And he beat Trump. But the problem when you look into those opinion polls is the one thing he can't change is perhaps his biggest negative, which is age. You know, Obama, a year before the election in 2012, could do something about all the things which were negatives for him. But the one thing that Biden can't change is that he is an ageing president who at the end of his next term would be 86. And he's clearly um, showing age in uh, the way he is speaking and moving and operating. And that has been noticed by American voters. And although Trump's only three years younger, I think, um, he's not seeming to be hit by that age issue in the same way. Biden can't do anything about that. And that is, I think, the thing which will be worrying Democrats. If that continues to grow as a doubt, it's not a doubt they can address while Biden's the candidate. Well, it, it, first of all, it throws a lot of attention on who the vice president is. And Kamala Harris is not popular. So the vice presidency becomes a more important uh, issue when people focus on the age of Joe Biden. I, I was speaking earlier this week to the chair of the Biden re-election campaign, who's a Hollywood mogul called Jeffrey Katzenberg. And he, he made a couple of observations, which I thought are interesting. First of all, he's absolutely certain Biden is running. He doesn't think Biden's going to quit or, or retire or whatever. And I have to say, Biden has got the best chance of beating Trump. I think if you had an unknown Democrat governor or congressman or Kamala Harris running, Trump would obliterate them, as he's done with his Republican opponents. So Biden's the incumbent. He has, as you say, got some things to talk about in terms of his record on the economy and domestic legislation, as well as experience abroad. And most American presidents get re-elected. Four out of five of my lifetime got re-elected. So I think he's still very much the best chance the Democrats have got of beating Trump. But it does beg the question, can you imagine, we've been having this discussion this week on this podcast about Israel, Gaza, Joe Biden's just been meeting with the Chinese president in San Francisco, Xi Jinping. Can you imagine if Donald Trump was the president right now? It would be making life a lot harder for Rishi Sunak and a lot harder for Keir Starmer in navigating things like the domestic politics around Gaza. That's true. And you can't imagine the meeting which we've seen with um, President Xi and Joe Biden kind of um, happening in the same way if Donald Trump was in that chair either. I guess um, the one thing I'd say is nobody thought Joe Biden was going to be the candidate last time around, but he became the only candidate who can win. And he's somebody who has decades of public service, but he will care most about Donald Trump not being the president of the United States, more than anything else. He'll see his, his historic role to prevent that happening again. And if next year it became clear that Joe Biden couldn't win, I think Joe Biden would see it as his historic role to stand aside for somebody else. And it's happened before in politics, and it's happened late before in Democrat politics, where the Democrats then came together to anoint a candidate rather than having a, a new fight. And there are people, you know, last week uh, we saw the um, the very popular, quite um, centre-ground Democrat Andy Beshear in Kentucky win, and um, not in conventional Democrat uh, territory and there are other potential governors as well. At the moment, I think Biden will be the candidate. And I think Biden can win. 
And I think you may be right, he's the best person to beat Trump. But if Biden concluded that wasn't the case over the course of the next six months, I think he would stand aside for somebody else. I think both Keir Starmer, perhaps not so surprising, but also Rishi Stunak, a Conservative Prime Minister, will want to see Biden win. Because being the British Prime Minister when Donald Trump is the president is, as Theresa May discovered last time, an extremely difficult thing to handle. That is right. Anyway, we should um, get on to some questions. Thanks for sending them in. We love uh, reading them, so do keep sending them to us. Okay, so let's start with another of the questions we've had about definitions. This is when you and I are supposed to explain the complicated words that people use in politics, but I'm not sure I know the answer to this one. Um, So I need your help. This is from Benjamin. Could you please explain post-neoclassical endogenous growth theory? Professor Balls, take it away. I can. A famous phrase put into a speech which Gordon Brown was making as Shadow Chancellor in 1994. The night before, actually, he was reading Why is it famous? Explain. Because it got uh, lampooned. Come on. It did. Face up to it. Everyone knew you'd written it as well. They they (laughs) did. I I think it was was my political arrival, this speech. It led to that famous Michael Heseltine joke, it's not Brown's, it's Balls. And um, I'd actually removed this phrase from his speech the night before, and Gordon Brown wrote in the margin, put back the theory. You know, this was an international conference of economists and business people from around the world, and Gordon wanted to show he knew his stuff. So here we go. Neoclassical growth theory said that growth of the economy, this is post-war, 50s and 60s, came from how much investment there was and how fast the population was growing. And the way they combined, which was called technical progress, was like a given. Um, It was seen as being exogenous. It was something which um, wasn't really affected by what governments did. And post those neoclassical ideas, post-neoclassical growth theory, said no, technical progress isn't exogenous. It happens within economies, depending upon what the government does. And if governments do really bad things, then they can actually depress growth and mean that your investment and your people do less well. Whereas if government does the right things to, for example, support infrastructure or innovation policy or competition in markets, that can mean you have more growth because you put the investment and the people together in a better way. So it basically said... I'm going to have to interrupt you, Ed. We're not going to have any more listeners to this podcast if you continue. <laughs> well, I have to say, I think that is completely <laughs> this, is, this is precisely why the phrase no. got so lampooned at the time. Well, may I just describe that as a rather kind of anti-intellectual, anti-economics remark, which I would expect from a historian. Um, and the post-neoclassical means government can do good or bad things. And the thing I would say in the election next year, both Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Rees will both say, we have an approach to government which will make the economy grow more strongly. And that is because they both sign up to post-neoclassical endogenous growth theory. Well, there you go. That is clear, clear as mud. Our next question comes from George. Ed and George, this is a question from another George. With your experience at the Treasury, what would you advise the outgoing Chief Secretary to put in a note to their successor next year? I had originally asked this question for my local MP, John Glenn, but perhaps it might now be useful for Laura Trott. 
So the first thing, George, is you've pointed out an element of the reshuffle people won't have noticed, but there is a new chief secretary to the Treasury. She's called Laura Trott. I knew her very well when I was in politics because she was one of David Cameron's key advisors. And she is one of the dark horses in the Tory party at the moment. In other words, she's a big rising star that's not getting a huge amount of attention. But I think she's got a big future to play in Tory politics. And the fact she's now in the cabinet is evidence of that. George, you're referring to the letter that the former Chief Secretary Liam Byrne, that was a Labour Chief Secretary, left for the Liberal Democrat Chief Secretary, David Laws, in 2010, which said, I'm sorry, there's no money left. And David Laws produced this letter, actually at a joint press conference with me. I had no, I'd never seen this letter. I didn't know of its existence. And in this joint press conference, it was a very brief period that David Laws was Chief Secretary, it was only for a couple of weeks. And uh, he produced this letter and showed it and read it out. And it's had a huge impact on British politics ever since. But what is interesting is no one has ever seen that letter since either. And the one when you see it reproduced in newspapers these days, it's all from photographs taken by cameramen at the time of David Laws holding that letter up at the press conference because he never, he was a bit sheepish afterwards that he had revealed this private correspondence from his predecessor. And uh, he put it away, and no one has. I've never seen the original. Look, it definitely had a very big political impact, and you, David Cameron, used it mercilessly. I have to say, I think the reason why he didn't want to produce it is because it was actually one of the shittiest things I think I've seen in politics in the last twenty years. Because the letter wasn't written by Liam Byrne to David Laws. It was written by Liam Byrne, thinking the chief secretary was going to be Philip Hammond, who Liam had been over the dispatch box for, for you know, all of the last um, period. And it goes back to Reginald Maudlin, who wrote a, a letter, a jokey letter, to his successor when the Conservatives lost the election in 1964. And lots of ministers, chief secretaries, have written these uh, letters to their successor. And Liam Byrne thought he was writing to Philip Hammond. Philip Hammond would have kept that private because he would have known exactly what the joke was. David Laws comes in was not supposed to get the letter, gets the letter, as you say, without telling you, goes public. I mean, I think to the extent that the Liberal Democrats ended up being damaged by being in the coalition, they got damaged by that sort of kind of rather craven, unpleasant behaviour. I thought that was one of the... Look, it was a stupid letter to write of Liam Byrne, and he's paid a big price, and you made a lot of politics out of it, but I think it puts David Laws in a really, really bad light because it was a joke to Philip Hammond and it was a nasty, nasty thing to do. I'll tell you who took a rather dim view of it. The permanent secretary at the Treasury at the time, Nicholas McPherson, who you and I both know very well. And uh, he tried to get hold of the letter because he said to David Laws, hold on, this is Treasury property because it's, it's not your personal property, David, because it's been written on Treasury letter paper. And it's also very valuable. And there are rules about politicians keeping valuable gifts. And this is this famous letter. You know, if you ever sold it, it would be worth a lot at an auction. And so Nick McPherson tried an ultimately unsuccessful attempt to get off David Laws this famous letter. And so I don't know where it is. Maybe, maybe David will tell us. I'm not as uh, negative about David as you are, Ed. And, you know, it uh, ultimately was a pretty stupid thing to put on a piece of paper. And also pretty stupid place to leave the country, I would make that point. But maybe David will get in touch with us to tell us where the uh, letter actually is these days. Anyway, let's move on. Our final question comes from Alex, who shared a tweet with us from Nadine Dorries, which says, 
This now, I think she must be talking about David Cameron going back. This now opens the door for the rerun of Osborne. He'll want a safe seat if such things exist, and then into the leader of the opposition slot. You heard it here first. Nothing happens by accident for these guys. It's all long planned. And Alex wants to know. Very short question from me. Is Nadine right? Well, she is. This is all a very, very cunning plan. So what I, my plan was to become the prime minister of this country, hold a referendum on European Union membership, lose the referendum, head off into not just uh, the backbenches, but out of parliament, edit a newspaper, get a career in banking, wait for the whole thing to go wrong, then get my Do a friend, podcast with me. Do a podcast with Ed Balls, get David Cameron back as foreign secretary, and that is all a very, very, very clever path to becoming prime minister of Britain. Or it's a political career that went disastrously wrong at the end. Well, <laughs> you decide. The only thing which I think we can say about Nadine is that she does tend to see conspiracies and she's just written a book to that effect. But she also knows what it's like when your political career goes disastrously wrong. And the difference between you and her is that um, you were offered a place in the House of Lords and then didn't take it. And she thinks she was offered a place in the House of Lords. And then in her case, the offer was withdrawn. And um, I think she's not quite forgiven everybody else for that. If Nadine has her way, there won't be any safe Tory seats at the end of all this. But look, thanks for all your questions and comments you've sent in. You can continue to email us at questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. And for more from the show, you can follow us on TikTok, on X, which I think it means Twitter, actually, Instagram or YouTube, where you can see clips from the show. That's all for today. See you next week when we'll discuss a big moment for the British economy. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.